WKCR-FM, New York, WKCR-HD, WKCR.org, 89.9 FM. Or maybe you're listening to the Deep Focus podcast. Maybe it's next week. I don't even know where we are, man. Rivers flowing backwards, cats and dogs living together. It's Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman, and it's a, it's a great place to be. We're, I'm very happy. Welcome back to the studio. It's been too long. Vijay Iyer. What's up? Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure and an honor. Well, I figured we could catch you in town because I know you are playing Dizzy's later this week. Correct. So I knew you'd have to stop and stand still (laughs) at one moment at least, and I would get get you in the hot seat. And you're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the show, but just tell me uh, what nights you're there. Uh, Thursday through Sunday, 15th through 18th. Um, trio with my dear brother Taishan Sori on drums and Harish Raghavan on bass. And we'll be joined by a very special guest, luminary, my, our dear mutual friend, Graham yes. Haynes, the yes. legend on uh, cornet, flugelhorn, and sorcery. Magnificent, magnificent. Yes. We are going to talk about that. You know know how we play the game here in Deep Focus. We invite a guest. The guest chooses a topic, and your humble narrator has to plunge into the WKCR archives and find live, unreleased recordings of the topic of the guest's choosing. Mm. And I'm standing here on the high dive board uh, above (laughs) the archives. Well, as it turns out, we were just set up for this. Uh, on the record we just heard, because the on that legendary Wayne Shorter recording, in addition to that fantastic rhythm section with Elvin Jones and I believe Reggie Wegman, you heard the pianist and sorcerer and firebrand and um, channeler of truth named McCoy Tyner, who is uh, you know one of the towering figures of contemporary piano playing. Um, We miss him. He left us at the beginning of the pandemic. uh, But I got to hear him live many, many times. I got to meet him a few times. And I feel like ever since I became aware of this area of music, I was aware of him. And in fact, I remember getting to see him play when I was in high school in the mid 80s, must have been 86. He came to Rochester, New York and graced us with unbelievable, sophisticated, resonant, um, room-shaking music. Yeah, what, did, what did one get 
was it one consistent thing or was there a range of things that McCoy Tyner might present on any given night or or was he I mean there's some people you know you kind of like it's a known quantity and other people you get kind of like which way is he going to be going <laughs> which was how would you say he fits into that uh range uh you know I mean it's so hard to say how to it, it's hard to pin down because he covered a lot of ground in his life uh he started early you know first became internationally known playing with John Coltrane when he was 19 or 20 in the early 60s and uh and just was never was never had any kind of like down period it just seemed like from then until he passed just a few years ago it was nothing but brilliance you know and and, and also like revolutionary restructuring of the language of piano you know of what a piano could do <clears throat> and how it would function in this music uh so i don't know i i guess like maybe because he was he did so much definitive stuff so early like in this you know you know someone asked me recently like who's your f i remember it was someone online just asked me like who who's your favorite young pianist? And I said, McCoy Tyner at age 20. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. But like he, there's so much that he did then became like now just kind of pivotal part of piano playing that like we take it for granted and we don't imagine that somebody had to invent it, you know? And so, and, and so I often think about like what were the conditions that led him to invent, to invent on that level, to create, like, really just, like, rethink the role of the pianist in the ensemble and the, like, how to articulate harmony, how to express rhythm, um, how to accommodate lines from somebody like John Coltrane, how to match the energetic output of someone like Elvin Jones, you know, and, uh, and that, to me, is sort of like that was the crucible that led him to form this new language, really. Um, and, you know, I'm just thinking, too, and you really did answer the question, which I probably didn't phrase well, but the answer you gave was spot on that um, about the, 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 the scope of what he did and what he addressed in music. But just while you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that being at that age and stepping onto such a grand stage. I mean, that band that yeah. even, you know, you couldn't have known that, okay, this is going to be the most shaping influence in this music for the next 50 years and still beyond. Is, yeah, still is, yeah, basically. Still is. And, but even if you didn't know that, the creative force that was driving that band that came together and it was apparent and it was a hugely popular band. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they sold a ton of records and played big venues and people came out and you are, you are in the eye and yeah. ear of the audience in a huge yeah. way. And it was, and it was music that was addressed 
you know, critically, intellectually, and analyzed and evaluated wrong sometimes, right? <laughs> Mostly sometimes. wrong. Yeah. Mostly wrong. But 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 seriously, it was yeah. taken very seriously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's a uh, just such a a huge thing. To, yeah, it to, doesn't happen very often, really, um, in this or any music. Um, and you know, I I think like. I mean, he was already, um, you know, Coltrane hired him for a reason. Like, he already had something going on, even as young as he was in Philadelphia. Um, and it's it's abundant from the beginning. But as you see him, as you hear him over those years in the early 60s, like, settle into that chair and Coltrane's band um, and develop the the strength and the foresight and the kind of like um, hyper-awareness of what's happening in the ensemble and in and uh, shaping the music over the course of these long stretches, you know, like the yeah. way these pieces could extend for 15, 20, 30 <laughs> minutes. Yeah, and, uh, without and then, an enormous amount of written structure. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean... Love Supreme being a perfect example that we then now kind of like take as a, as like kind of like biblical <laughs> kind of text of like this is the you know it was written you know and then like when you actually look at it oh like when you look at what was, it was written it was written on the back of a napkin basically yeah the, there's the yeah. score of it is like it's it's very much an open score it's like well take this motive and move it around like it literally says that in Coltrane's notes um move it through the keys he'll say things like that like it doesn't say how when or how you know how quickly or like how many repetitions or anything so it's all like take this and create with it essentially is the directive so that's um and you know we have a couple of takes of Love Supreme there's the you know famous studio version then there's uh, some live versions, but the most, you know, like when you listen to the one that they just released last year, live in Seattle, uh, you realize like how much else could have happened, you know, and could and did happen. And, and then particularly like McCoy's solo on um, Pursuance, the third movement of Love Supreme, in the new, in the live version that they just released, which is from sixty six sixty six, I think, or six, yeah, I think it's just as the group was starting to splinter because all these new elements were added. Um, but McCoy's um, just boldness with form, like he's really creating new form with the basic building blocks in this and you hear it happening like just everything cracking open there and like i hear that today and i it feels like it's a new path it feels new today 60 years later you know or 57 years later that like there's still some unexplored um innovation that he offered us in his mid-20s that you know it's sort of uh 
that that we can kind of like learn from still. We can still study and, and find something new that hasn't yet been codified into, um, you know, a pedagogy or something. Like now people will teach you like how to play like McCoy Tyner, but they can't, you they know, can't it's really... You think like him, how to yeah, respond it's a, like Yeah, that. how to like really invent like that, how to, to make decisions like that. You know, that's the sort of, that's the more key element and then to hear what he carried forward into his own ensembles, which is now going to set us up for what we're about to hear, because um, he took that, like, both the profound rhythmic grounding and then the deep resonance that he would get from the instrument and power, like, you kind of associate these, like, left-hand power chords or something. That's a big part of his musical language. But also the mobility of that, like you could say, okay, well now the center is here. You know, he's just going to move, like make a decision as they're playing. Like, well, we're in this, this is the pedal point now. We're going to move here and orient everything around it, you know. So he kept moving, you know. And uh, and so the real radical openness that he assimilated and helped create in Coltrane's band then kind of lives on in his own music. And so what we're going to hear... I believe is a time. Sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. To kick something off. Vijay, you know the answer to every question is yes. Okay. So you know, yeah, man. I'm. I'm. I. I, I forgot I was hosting the show. I oh, was just listening to you. Talk. Sorry, I started. That's no. That's I got great. into that's great. disquisition mode here. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, yeah. Lead on. There's too much to say. I, uh, <laughs> but we. But you know, I don't want to go. Um, Full Phil Shep. May he rest in peace. Someone has to. <laughs> but, um, uh, no, but... Um, yeah, no, what, what I was going to say is we're going to listen to his band from the 70s, which is yes. like such an iconic group of that period, carrying and channeling the sort of like, pow, you know, quartet power, like the focused um, radical intensity that you associate with Coltrane's quartet now in his own quartet formation, which is like kind of turbocharged in a different way yeah. with, um, you know, with Alphonse Muzon on drums, Junie Booth on bass, and Azar Lawrence on saxophones. It's kind of funny to think of it that, I mean, you could look at it and say like, well, he's just, he's carrying on, you know, Coltrane wrote this blueprint and he's just walking down that road and he's got another, you know, uh, powerhouse tenor saxophone and bass is doing this drums is doing that but it it doesn't really operate yeah. in the same way that the coltrane quartet yeah did. compositionally is different it has more in common with what we just heard from wayne shorter actually um in that sense of like there are while the themes are a little different there's a different kind of like very more specific harmonic structure i'd say um which like coltrane was in the process of letting go of while McCoy was in that band. Um, but it's sort of more returning to these uh, form, like song forms, but then also cracking them open, you know. Yeah, um, they... Passion they, Dance being a clear example of that, which I believe we'll hear at some point on this. I, I, I'm I have a feeling sure. that the I think we're tracks starting... might be scrambled or out of order or something. We'll, we'll I, find out what it is and we'll tell you later. I think we're going to hear three, four, five, six. Actually, I don't... Okay. Okay. That's what I think it is, but oh, we'll see. It. We'll see where so it goes. So it starts with Parasina, and then Search for Peace, a classic, of uh, a classic composition of Tyner's from uh, the Real McCoy, right? And then Sahara 
and Aisha. These are pieces of his from the 70s that became uh, core parts of his repertoire. We are at Pori Jazz Festival in Finland, July of 1973. I know the place. Yeah. <laughs> I've done that. Yes, I've been you on do. that stage, yeah. It's, uh, well, tell us what you remember about it. Oh, um, the trailers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's outdoors, and so everything has this kind of outsized energy. Um, that it, basically, you're addressing this multitude outside in the middle of the summer. And, of course, being in Scandinavia in the summer is a little surreal because it's like a lot of summer. You know, yes. like it's a lot of daylight. Um, and it's also a bit of a drive up drive north of Helsinki so you fly into Helsinki and then you're you're you drive through countryside for about four or five hours to get to Pori and um I remember getting some delicious wild strawberries oh yeah from a like a truck stop <laughs> on yeah. the way and uh yeah so it's a it's very it's got flavor I yes. would say oh I, I will say that my the last time I was there which was 2018 I got to meet Burke Bacharach. <laughs> he wow. was playing. He was in his nineties and still playing shows. And it was anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. You, you definitely. I have not been there. I've been elsewhere in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. even farther north. Yeah, and it's there's something you you definitely have the feeling you're at the top of the world. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. another 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 place to be, and uh, it's a big major European mm-hmm. festival for sure. So there we are. Uh, once again, it's McCoy Tyner, of course, is playing the piano. The wonderful Azar Lawrence on tenor and soprano saxophone, Junie Booth on the bass, Bronx native Alphonse Muzan on the drums. <laughs> a little shout out for my Bronx brethren. And uh, he's, uh, I think, a lot, you know, yeah. McCoy had a lot of great musicians he was playing with around this time, that, and many, including Alphonse Muzan in particular, I think very underrated by a lot mm-hmm. of people. But regardless, it's the band we're listening to, and they are... I'll let you hear for yourself. The show's called Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. Very happy to have Vijay Iyer here in the studio with me. And Vijay is at Dizzy's all this week. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the show. And start, first night is Thursday. Thursday. Yes. Yes. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at Dizzy's. Mm-hmm. That's in uh, Columbus Circle, right? Correct. And uh, uh, what's the... What's the uh, Website for there? Do you know offhand? We got a jazz.org. Jazz.org, of course. <laughs> Are tickets available? I hope so. Can people make reservations you right can. now? Yeah, go ahead. Jazz.org. Yeah. Okay, okay. All right, McCoy Tyner live in Puri, 1973, a deep focus on WKCR.
Well, it sounds like a smattering uh, <laughs> of audience, but... Uh, There's thousands of people out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm tell you. sure. That is some music you've never heard. Let me back up for a second and tell you, you're listening to WKCR. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. The show is called Deep Focus, and we have a guest in the studio, Vijay Iyer. What's up? Vijay's at Dizzy's here in New York City. If you're not in New York City, you want to book some plane tickets that will get you here no later <laughs> than Thursday afternoon and allow for some traffic to get into the city so you'll make it to Columbus Circle to <laughs> Dizzy's at uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center, jazz.org. If you need to, if you don't already have a reservation, if you're one of the few people <laughs> in the world who has not made a reservation, well, you'll probably want to do so right now. And um, Thursday through Sunday at Dizzy's. And we are, so Vijay called our attention to McCoy Tyner. And here in the WKCR archives, we found this recording from 1973, 50 years ago, mm. next month. That's right. Puri Jazz Festival in Finland. And we're listening to McCoy Tyner, and man, this boy, this sounds like a a band, like you talk about uh, a uh, a band of merry men. <laughs> they sound like they just jumped off their their bark onto the bow of your ship, cutlasses <laughs> flying, and uh, who knows what's coming next? It's Azar Lawrence on tenor saxophone, and you'll hear. Soprano saxophone as well. Junie Booth on the bass, Alphonse Muzan on the drums, McCoy Tyner on piano, and Vijay. What uh, what was your feeling listening to this? What were we hearing? Oh my God! <clears throat> all the elements. It has this like volcanic kind of quality. There's all this um, molten energy, uh, and I just I guess I keep. I mean, I keep zeroing in on what. Mac Coy Tyner is doing at the piano in this music, how um, open his concept is, and how physical it is, how um, resonant it is, and how the way he's like repurposed the piano essentially as not just a thing that makes chords or something or a thing that you can play melodies on, but something that is this, uh, this, um, Oh, I don't know, a way to like harness the energy of the body and transmute it into resonant power, you know, <laughs> and like that kind of, uh, and so it, it's sometimes like when he's using the bottom register, it's not to state harmonies or something. It's actually more to, uh, in the way that the drummer is working as a sort of like driver of the of the energy and the rhythm and the feel and the color of the ensemble. Um, and so it's a lot of clusters. It's a lot of like uh, <clears throat> chords that you could not name because they don't really have names because it's really more, it's more, um, you, there's just this very wise pair of hands that are using the keyboard to make that body of the piano resonate and shake and drive the intensity of the music. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's not that there's no harmonic content, but that that's to put it that way is kind of to strip it of what's going on, you know? Uh, so I just kept hearing that, like, uh, 
the, his role in the ensemble. Then there's that stretch when he took a stroll during Azar Lawrence's solo, and you hear the difference. You know, actually, like what what goes away when McCoy steps away? Like, what does that sound? What you know? And of course, he used to do that a lot with Coltrane too. Um, take a stroll for six or eleven or twenty-two courses <laughs> before coming back around, and then when he'd come in. It would redirect and focus and amplify what was already happening, um, and and so it's kind of like a shift from black and white to color or something like that, or um, or just adding dimension to everything. But also, I think there's something that changes in the quality of the rhythm when he leaves and then when he re-enters the music. That there's a uh, that it is sort of like a lot of what he is doing is is shaping the feel of the rhythm section. <clears throat> and I remember like seeing an interview with him where he talked about why Coltrane hired him, you know, 12, 13 years earlier. Because uh, this is from 73. Yeah. And, um, and he said that, you know, a lot of people when they talk about McCoy Tyner and Coltrane's band it's about these quartal harmonies you know that's the sort of like nerd you know academic music theory nerd term for what people think he's doing you know and yes like some of the things he does are made of stacked fourths if anybody cares about what that, about that but like that's not the cause that's more like the effect you know, like in a way that he made that choice in order to do something specific, which was to lock with the rhythm and, and to actually do it in a way that was open enough that it could accommodate the kinds of things that Coltrane was playing. So, um, which is to say like uh, a certain kind of ambiguity, but also a certain kind of def- definition, clarity, rhythmic clarity. Um and so it's, but what it, I guess what I was going to say is that the in that interview, what he said was that Coltrane hired him because of his groove, because of his rhythm, actually, like because of his way with pulse and with rhythm and with, and the way he functioned in a rhythm section, his relationship to drums, that kind of stuff, and all that other stuff emerged from the process, you know. But it was really that he had the right kind of dance character in his playing that uh, that that music needed. Yeah, and Elvin certainly had that. Of course. And here, though, so it's 13 years later, as you say, and he's got, he's constructed a very different kind of rhythm section. That's right, yeah. And we were talking as as we were listening about um, a certain, like, you know, how what happens in the sort of fusion turn as it might be called uh when the quality of rhythm sort of shifted in this music and uh there was sort of a i don't know people talk about mixing jazz and rock or whatever but it's maybe more just that there were different kinds of rhythms revealing themselves in the music and different sounds different levels of sound <laughs> different like amounts Literally, of sound truly, yeah. uh, and maybe just like the electrification of certain things and and 
different kind of drums, different drum sets, different size drums, different kinds of cymbals that maybe are more associated with rock. And so that's kind of what you're hearing is there's this like edge to it that is has that rock intensity and the rock sound, particularly in Alphonse Muzon's playing. Um, but not that it has no none of the other vocabulary. It's not that it doesn't have, I don't know, like some mix of Afro-Caribbean and blues influences in it. Like that's all in there too. But um, no, well, there. this was a moment, you know, and it's funny, um, maybe there are a few dedicated deep focus listeners who might be thinking of some of the things that are resonating in my mind, that this is the exact same time, I mentioned this off mic to you, Arturo Farrell was here, we were playing live recordings of Steely Dan. So <laughs> Steely Dan, in the 90s, started sort of recreating their studio albums, yeah. you know, on stage. Right. But when, and they hadn't done live performances in many years, but in mm-hmm. 1973, they were a live band, not so different mm-hmm. texturally in other ways to what we're hearing on stage with McCoy. Um, Vernon Reed was here doing a piece on this exact same period of time. Santana, what he was doing with Mike Shreve on drums, mm-hmm. another Bay Area musician, yeah. was a very big overlap right. idiomatically of what's happening here. So, yeah. And I, honestly, like Hendrix, I mean, on a plane recently, I, there's a new documentary about Band of Gypsies, a recent documentary that was on, I got to see, watch again on a plane. And they show some footage from the Woodstock concert, like pre-Band of Gypsies. And, you know, like, I think part of what's, what is driving this is there's this, like this ecstatic element in all of this music that we associate often with Coltrane and especially late Coltrane and with so-called free jazz. Um, but it's actually kind of in everything. It's in like the Grateful Dead. It's in Hendrix. It's in, I don't know, um, The Who. You know, oh, it's like, yeah, so, so like, you know, the fact that it's kind of showing up everywhere, it's like, that's just in the air at this yeah, point. You right. know, 73, it's been in the air for a good six, seven years, right? So... Um, so it's, it's kind of like, what do you do? How do you access that? And, and I'm sure that, um, yeah, this, yeah. especially in this music and in that piece that we just heard, <laughs> it reaches a kind of a pitch of intensity. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess if you heard it, you know, and felt it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know if I could pin it down to something. I, I felt it. Right. <laughs> I was receiving that. Yeah, yeah, it really, like, it stirs you, it kind of shakes you. You feel, you you know, I feel myself just kind of, like, rocking to it. Like, it's it's and, really... And then it broke down into that piano, I don't know what to call that, uh, that movement of McCoy. Yeah. Um, sort of solo, and then it sounded like Muzan was kind of picking up his <laughs> thing behind it, going, okay, yeah, we're, yeah. let's go. Yeah. I, it sounded improvised. I don't know that it was. I'm sure it was probably part of an arrangement but do you know remember the part that i'm talking about it was like two-thirds of the way in to the piece that after azar yeah. stepped away yeah yeah before the drum solo yes immediately the, before the drum right solo. right yes yeah yeah because i i mean well so one thing that um i think like a feature of a lot of this music that kind of emerged during coltrane's quartet so what when i lived in california in oakland in the 90s i worked in the band in this band led by a legendary west coast drummer or we know him 
yeah, as a West Coast drummer, but he had lived all over, named E.W. Wainwright. Um, and in fact, he joined this band after Alphonse moves on. So there are some live recordings with him playing drums with McCoy uh, that you can find on YouTube and stuff. And me, when I was in his group, which is called the African Roots of Jazz, we did a lot of this repertoire, in fact. And he played with this, a similar intensity. In fact, he had studied with Elvin Jones. And what he said about, you know, he asked Elvin a, a, some questions about how they organized that music, you know, uh, Coltrane's music I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And it was actually that most of the, it's not that it wasn't arranged, but a lot of the arrangement was intuitive and, and actually really spontaneous, but it was sort of like they agreed intuitively, like, okay, yeah, this is this is a downbeat. You know, like this yeah. is like, yeah. this is the top of a form or this is the top of a, you know, like we're going to land here together. So it might start with these like four bar, like a four bar cycle or something. And then that would double and then it would become an eight bar cycle. So then during those eight bars, they could stretch further. And then when they arrive at the top of a cycle, it's bigger, you know, and then it would double again and again, you know, so then like you would get these massive blocks that they were all feeling together, but nobody was saying like, okay, we're almost there, guys. Eight more bars. You know, like they weren't doing that. They just felt it together. And then they would land together with this like astonishing, just like shocking level of unity. Like, how did you all know? Like, that was the question. Like, how did you guys know? And it's like, well, it just happened because we did it, you know? They didn't rehearse. They didn't um, even really talk about the forms or anything it actually happened through playing you know that was its own conversation that was its own set of decisions and so you hear that happening here too where it's like form is emerging like these episodes are emerging not because anyone said after this there's going to be a that you know after this solo then there'll be this ambiguous episode that will bridge into the drum solo that's just what happened you know and it's sort of like they made a set of choices that would that that felt right that kind of and then they're just working with it like at every moment so when you hear it that way that every sound is a choice and yet that somehow the choices they're making are reinforcing one another um that gives you but it like it puts me more in awe actually of what's happening but also like i can relate to it you know mm-hmm. it's funny you remind me uh there's a moment, I don't know if you've seen um, Shirley Clark's film, Ornette, made in Yes, America. yes. You remember sure. the scene? It's kind of a fly-on-the-wall scene. It's not like a formal interview. And George Russell's talking to Ornette, and he says, I was always so impressed. He said, when you were playing with the quartet, I never saw you count the band off or anything. You guys would just all start playing together. He goes, I never understood, you know, how did you do that? And Ornette kind of thinks about it. He goes, insight. 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 One word answer. Yeah. Insight. <laughs> Incitement. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Insight. No, but it's true. Yeah. They, um, there's a, uh, they're breathing together. And yeah. They're, they're, yeah. They're feeling uh, the arcs of things together. So then it's sort of like, well, this is what's supposed to happen now. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, it, in your experience, what does it take to find that on the bandstand? Does it take time playing together or is it just is it meeting of the minds is it what is that exactly 
Um, it can happen in either of those ways or both. You know, um, certainly one reinforces the other, but sometimes you, it sometimes you find musicians that where you feel that from the beginning, like from the first breath. Other times it emerges over, like, you know, these guys are deep in a tour, so it's sort of like, well, let's do what we did yesterday, but different. You know, that's kind of like the, that's often how it is. It's like, well, we did this yesterday, so we can't, it's almost like you have your own sort of inner um, cop or something that's like, well, I can't play the same thing I played yesterday. I got to find something new right now. Um, and that, but then you'll find that like whatever that other, like more collective intelligence that emerges from the ensemble, it's moving in a way that helps you, helps you find that other thing, you know? I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that if you go to Dizzy's this week, <laughs> Thursday through Sunday, I know exactly what you're talking about. And well, yeah, certainly like I can say that the people that I... And fortunate to play with, um, we do that together. I mean, I that's why I keep playing with them. And like you know, Taishan Sawyer, I've played with him for twenty-two years. You know, we just did a run of shows the other day in Philadelphia, and it was both like channeling what we've done before, but also remaking it, making it new. You know, and that's kind of. That's what happens, you know. You have this like familial co- connection after a while, where, where uh, you um, you you carry each other. You know, you carry each other. Vijay Iyer is my guest. The show's called Deep Focus. You're listening to WKCR FM New York, WKCR HD, WKCR org. Maybe if or if you're in New York and you have friends elsewhere in the world, you could tell them they can find us at WKCR org. We are. on the FM dial here in NYC. And uh, in about a week's time, this show goes up on the Deep Focus podcast. You can find that on that phone in your pocket. It's all free, (laughs) just like on the radio, no advertising or anything. And uh, you can can take it with you. You can listen to it whenever you want. But right now, this is a, a real live moment. And Vijay Iyer is at Dizzy's Thursday through Sunday this week, June 2023, if you're listening to it in the in our present plane. <laughs> uh, our, uh, not our avatars in centuries mm-hmm. to come. Although maybe you can experience it that way then too. I don't know. I'll yeah, figure that out by then. But uh, so we're listening to McCoy Tyner. He's the subject of Deep Focus at Vijay Iyer's... Uh, in, in, what's the word I'm looking for? Suggestion. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> There's another something I was looking for. And um, we've got this fantastic live recording from the WKCR archives from Pori Jazz in Finland, July of 1973. It's a quartet with McCoy Tyner, of course, on piano. Azar Lawrence, tenor and soprano saxophones. Junie Booth on the bass. Alphonse Muzan on the drums. And um, should we... Jump back in? Sure, let's do it. Search for peace. Anything you want to say about that? Oh, it's a legendary, iconic melody, beautiful song. And um, and then we'll hear Sahara and Aisha, three well-beloved compositions by Mr. McCoy Tyner. 
Vijay Iyer is at Dizzy's <laughs> Thursday through Sunday. What are the dates? 15th to the Thank 18th Thank of you. June. <laughs> Thanks for jazz.org. Make your reservations org. right now and join us in Pori Jazz 1973. It's WKCR.
Yeah, it's Deep Focus. That was part one of three parts of this program from June 12th, 2023. Vijay Iyer, my guest on the topic of McCoy Tyner. There's two more chunks of it. And I want to take this opportunity to thank everybody who has been giving us the clicks and the likes and the follows and the subscribing to Deep Focus. It makes all the difference in the world. It it means a whole lot to us personally. It also helps other people who don't know about the show to find out about it. And you're just making a big difference all around the world. Those ripples are felt. I'm telling you from one end of the earth to the other. We have listeners in over 60 countries now. That's all because of you saying you like the show and, and the comments really do mean the world. Uh, you can follow along on Instagram. Also, we're Deep Focus Podcast. Deep underscore focus underscore podcast at, uh, on Instagram. And there's more information for you there. You can also find out more. You go to my personal website, mitchgoldman.com. Pull down the About Deep Focus tab. And you can also uh, find us on your favorite podcasting app or at mitchgoldman.podbean.com. That's actually the hosting site. Okay, I will see you over at part two. Once again, it's June 12th, 2023. Deep focus with guest Vijay Iyer on the topic of McCoy Tyner. See you over there.